We are in a series called The Story, and the story is our attempt to go through the whole of the scriptures to find out what the overall storyline is in the Bible. Um, the Bible is actually something that is not intended to be a bunch of individual little tiny books that have no correlation with each other. Sometimes we jump into one book and we get frustrated or confused or offended, and we let a scripture stand out by itself without the, the perspective of the whole of everything else that's happening in that in that passage or in God's word. And so we've been going from Genesis, and we're going to end up in the book of Revelation by the end of this semester. Um, but, but right now, we're right in where Jesus has, you know, hit the ground running with his ministry. Uh, we're kind of in, in the midst of a, a mini-series in the whole thing. We're, last week, we talked about Jesus the man. Jesus is all God and all man simultaneously. It's the hypostatic union of Christ. And the, and the importance of that is, is significant. Last week, we talked about how his closest followers wanted us to know and wanted the, the first readers to know that Jesus was in fact king, that he was in fact God, that he was in fact rabbi, and that he was in fact judge, but he defied all the previous understood definitions of any of those four. And, and, and so not only that, we get into now, this week, with the message. The message of Jesus was something that he wanted to make sure that everyone knew and that, that his first followers recorded. So we're going to be bouncing around the Gospels today to try to spend time, just a little bit of time, on very familiar stories that we've heard to help put them into the greater puzzle of what scripture is saying. The message of Jesus, if you had to boil it down into one just statement, it's this, it's the kingdom, the kingdom. And, and as Americans, we, we're not super in touch with co the concept of kingdom. In fact, every 4th of July, we celebrate the fact that we aren't in touch with the kingdom. Uh, we, we, we realize as Americans, if we want a kingdom, it's ours to build on our own. We're, we're king of our own castles. And that's kind of, we like to keep it that way. But the truth is, is that Scripture does not balk or shy away from the idea of kingdom, where there is a king. And when Jesus comes and he first starts talking about kingdom, everyone that he's talking to loves the idea because they're being oppressed by the Romans. And so when Jesus, who's, he's talking a lot like a, a really good Messiah, perhaps even the Messiah, this Jesus is actually now saying over and over again about his kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom. But the thing that he wasn't doing was, he wasn't saying, so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to have a military force and push out your oppressors. We're going to take the thing that is oppressing and enslaving and keeping you down, and we're going to get that out of the situation so the kingdom prevails. Now, instead, what he says is, I am going to tell you about a kingdom that could survive even when you're oppressed. I'm going to tell you about a kingdom that, that comes through the cracks in the ground in the midst of the darkness and can still be light in the midst of the darkness. I'm going to tell you that we are in a sin-soaked town, in a sin-soaked country, in a sin-soaked part of the world, and we're in a sin-soaked planet. And yet, the kingdom that I'm telling you about, the thing that I'm going to keep on preaching about, is still legitimate. And the way that Jesus decided to talk about this kingdom was in parables, which is kind of like. Jesus was constantly doing, well, you, what's the kingdom like? It's kind of like this. Or it's kind of like this. Which, of course, brings us to the Polar Express. The Polar Express was, is a movie, and I know you're like, why can't these guys just get off of Christmas? We're crying out loud, because we love Christmas. The Polar Express is one of those great Christmas films where they, they, they grapple with the whole concept of faith and belief. But I love the vehicle that they use for it. Um, the vehicle they use boils down to this bell that this kid sees. He sees it on Santa's sleigh, and even though he sees Santa right in front of him, he can't hear anything. Throughout the whole film, uh, his skepticism has caused him to see things, but still not totally put the puzzle together, to the point that even though all the kids are hearing the bells from the chimes, from the little bells, he can't. He's deaf to it. 
and he's shaking it, and he's frustrated that he can't hear the very thing that others can. And, and, and all of a sudden, there's that pivotal point where all of a sudden he hears, for the very first time, the bell that he was previously deaf to. And Tom Hanks narrates the end of the, the movie so well by, by talking about how oftentimes we grow deaf to the ringing. And you even see it in his parents at the end of the film. They're, they're, they're picking up the bell, and they can't, they can't hear anything. They're like, oh, it's broken. And he reshakes it, but no, he can hear it. And, and, and the cool thing that the movie showcases is this. This bell, to some, is absolutely broken. To others, it's the very music that reminds them of their faith. The parables did the same thing. The parables, the parables that Jesus taught either caused people to hear for the very first time the secrets of the kingdom. I hear, I hear it. I didn't get it before, but now I get it. Or it caused them to go deeper into their unbelief. Uh, Matthew Henry once said that uh, the parables are the things of God that are made more plain and easy to those willing to be taught, and at the same time more difficult and obscure to those who are willfully ignorant. And so my, my hope and my desire is that as we're hearing about Jesus's kingdom that he came to establish, a kingdom that, that can survive in the midst of pain, difficulty, and radically obscure or diverse circumstances, that our heart will be willing to hear the ringing of it rather than deaf to it. Because the kingdom is kind of like a seed. Jesus starts off by talking about the kingdom um, in a way that was going to correct a previous misconception about how a person really connects with God. Um, if you're in chapter 24, it's right at the beginning. Um, if not, it's going to be on in, in the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. It starts off with this. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. Which lake? Sea of Galilee, that's right. So a lot of Jesus' ministry all took place right around this lake right here. And so this was right in that same type of space that Jesus would have been teaching from. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out on the lake while all the people were along on the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, it sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Have you ever tried to grow grass in Manuka or Shanahan? What's the problem? The stinking soil's got so much clay in it. It's like you need a pickaxe to like break through it in the midst of like, like the later spring years. I remember we tried to grow um, our lawn when we, when we lived in Misty Creek, and it was just like, it was impossible. It, looked, it was a joke. People if you wanted to laugh, you drove by our house. It was a joke. And it was just, it was terrible. When we moved into our next house, we said, we have to have someone who knows what they're doing because we are failing at this. And that's because, because the, the, the ground was so hard, it couldn't take the seed. As soon as the, the rain came, uh, it would wash it away. Uh, the, 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 the seed couldn't penetrate the hardness of the soil. What Jesus is saying here about the kingdom is this. You know, a lot of us think, he's talking to his Jewish audience, you think that your connection with God is simply your birthright because of your ethnicity, because of your backdrop. But I'm telling you that this seed can actually be raised in a religious home and never take root. 
You think that just because of the fact that you are God's chosen people, that you can scale back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that, that you've got some type of connection that will keep you. But the truth is, is that this seed is not going to take root simply because of who your dad was, your family was, or your backdrop. This seed actually, the difference maker in this seed, the seed of my kingdom, not being religious, but the seed of my kingdom perspective is your heart and the condition that your heart is in. If that seed is in a good soil, it will take root and multiply. If not, man, I don't care who your parents were, you're going to die on the vine. The thing is, is that Jesus is communicating to us that our heart matters the condition and the soil of our heart, if we want to actually live out this thing that Jesus called us to, and I, and I am assuming that that's part of why you're here, if we want to live that out, we have to recognize that we have to nurture the soil of our heart. I was reading a blog earlier this week um, from someone who said, look, I'm a millennial, and the thing is, is that I wake up in the morning, and I have voices in my head, not because I'm crazy, but because the first thing that I wake up to is I'm looking at my screen, and all of a sudden, I'm scrolling through my newsfeed, any alerts, any emails, and all throughout the day, all the way to when I go to sleep at night and I cuddle up next to my phone at nighttime, I have messages all throughout my day. You want to know what squelches the voice of God in my life? The fact that I've been listening to a thousand and one voices from everyone but Him. And that seed doesn't take root because it hasn't been nurtured. We're coming up on Easter here, so here's what I want to encourage you. No matter what, you're, what you know, part of your faith you're in, your journey, whether you're just a Christian or you've been a Christian for 40 years, to actually cut away time, to spend time in meditation. And that sounds way more spiritual and mystic than it actually is. You're simply cutting away time to be relational with God, simply like you would with any other relationship. And just I want to encourage you through two, two real basic ways. If you've got a copy of the story, Awesome. You can read the scripture out of it from chapter 25, 26, and 27, which is right this, this next week. Read 25. That's what I'm going to be reading this next week. And you're reading about Jesus' steps, which are leading him to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. If you don't have a copy of the story, you can pick one up out in the, at the guest hub. It's five bucks. If you don't have five bucks, just take one and run fast. Um, I just want you in there, okay? If, if you want something for free, go for it. Uh, uh, just go onto your, you can do this while we're, we're talking today. Go onto in your app store or on your phone, search for Bible or search for version, and download this free app. They've got tons of devotionals that are intended to walk you between now and Easter or through Lent or whatever, and actually use this time to let God nurture your heart to let you come up to Easter with a heart that's got soil that's already been cultivated and ready to understand the kingdom perspective of what God wants to do. Because it's kind of like a seed, but it's also kind of like a son. Um, it, how many of you are the oldest uh, kid in your, in your family? Okay, yeah, you guys are the right ones. All right, how many of you, how many of you are one of the younger kids or, no, how many of you are the youngest in the family? Messed up people. All right. Now, Jesus tells a story that that is intended to offend people, and and we have to understand the context for us to really get why it was so offensive. Um, A little bit of the context, uh, if you've got your Bible, this is in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to go a little bit earlier in the the chapter, and this is actually mid-page 337. This is what Jesus, this is the context of how Jesus offends his crowd. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. If you ate with someone, that was basically a way of saying, yeah, we're tight. We're, fi- we're like family. And the religious people are like, we heard this guy's religious. We heard he's a rabbi. And yet, have you seen the crowd of people that he's, he's eating with, that he's cool with them on that level? 
And if you're so righteous, Jesus, why in the world are you hanging out and not filtering out your crowd to keep away the people who are the most unrighteous people in our crew, in our whole village, the prostitutes, the tax, the tax collectors, the people who are cheating our own people, the drunkards. You're allowing them to hang with you guys. Why in the world, if you're so righteous, if you're such a good rabbi, would you do that? And Jesus decides to start to help them understand that this seed which takes root in our heart that we have a radically different view than the father. And so he starts telling a story about a father and an older son and a younger son. This is the bottom of page 337. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, again, before we go any further, we're not going to get offended by this story nearly as much as they were offended in this first audience unless we understand the context in this particular world, if you, I, like, I got married. I got married to Julie. Um, what I didn't do was my parents who were back in L.A., I didn't go back home to L.A. and start building a house connected to my dad's house so that Julie and I could, could live there. But that's what you would do in the first century. You would actually um, build your house. The, the, the groom-to-be would build his house next to the dad's house because this was a, a village. I mean, it really did take a village. And, and the wealth of the dad wasn't like in the cash he had in the bank or uh, uh, the stocks that he had in, in the market. His, his wealth was like his livestock, the, the, the goats and the animals and the, the cows and everything else. Uh, that, that, and, and that was his, his, his inheritance. One day when this guy dies, he could leave his two kids their share of the property, and also their share of the livestock. So what does this kid do? He goes up to his dad, and he says, here's the deal. I know that I'm going to get my portion. I'm going to get 50% of this when you die, but I don't want to wait for that. I don't know how you're staying alive for so long. I don't know if it's essential oils or what's going on with you, but it's like <laughs> frustrating me because... I got plans, and you're screwing up those plans by staying alive. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to give me my portion before you die. I want it now. I know I'm dead to you. As soon as I, I don't care. I got plans. I want to leave this country, this Jewish stinking country. I want to leave it. I want to go to my, on my own path. Now, here's what the dad can't do. Again, he can't just go to the safe and give the guy cash. What he has to do is he has to sell off part of the family's property that they're currently residing on. And he has to sell off part of the livestock that the family are currently utilizing. And so his estate has been cut down in order to trade it out for cash to give to this kid. But at least he invested it wisely. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Okay, pause. Is he in his home country? No. Okay, he's a Jewish guy. Jesus is talking to a Jewish crowd here. He's a Jewish guy. Now he's in a foreign country who do not embrace Jewish people or Jewish customs. So now he's got to sell himself off to a non-Jewish person. You know what you call non-Jewish people? Gentiles. But you know what you want to call them if you really want to be like, like to curse them out? You call them Gentile pigs. Pigs, uh, pigs were something that were like apps. There was a reason, if you went on the Israel trip, there was a reason that a key part of your diet was missing, bacon. It's because of the fact that, that pigs are looked at as this unclean animal, and it's not something that you, you'd want to hang around with. And so this guy, this Jewish kid in a non-Jewish country, is so in need that he hires himself out to a citizen of that country. 
And here's how it picks up. Who sent him to his fields to feed what? Pigs. It's kind of like, you know, your people have called my people pigs for so long. You call us Gentile pigs. Awesome. You need something? You need cash? You need to survive? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go out and feed the very thing. You're going to feed you, Jewish person, are going to feed the very thing that you've been calling my people this whole time. Enjoy. Absolute offensive in his face. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, and this is the speech that he memorizes in head. This is what I'm going to say to my dad. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So what he's saying is this. I'm going to go tell my dad, look, look, you don't have to embrace me. You don't have to accept me. I'm sorry for what I did. I sinned against God and against you. But I'm good for it, dad. I could earn it back. If you just put me to work, like you don't have to even call me your son. You don't have to look at me. I will, I'm good for the money that I wasted. I'll pay you back. I promise. My dad's got to accept me if I do that. Now here's the thing. He says that he's going off to his father. But again, everyone in, that Jesus is telling this story to knows how this story ends. Because there's a custom that happens when someone does that to their dad. In a community that's tight, if someone did that to their dad, the dad's not going to simply go, oh, okay, you know what? It's cool. I'm just going to take away your phone for three months. <laughs> and no Wi-Fi, okay? No data plan for No. If you dishonored a father, number one, the community around would, would find out about it, and they would curse that kid's, to, I mean, that, they would, that kid would be the poster child for what you don't do. If that kid had the gall to come back into town to beg for mercy from his dad, and that happened, they had a process of shaming you. What they would do is they would go, and it was called the kazaza, they would go and they would get these pots, these ceramic pots, and everyone would, once they heard that you were coming, they would line the streets with these pots. When that kid starts to walk through, they would raise the pot in, in, into the sky and slam it down on the, on, on the ground right in front of you so it shatters. You want to know how broken you are? You don't want to know what you did to break your father's heart? Another one, and the kid keeps on walking. You've broken not only your father's heart, you've broken the trust of this community. And every step, that kid is crying. He's walking through, but you know what? He deserves it. All that shame. Until finally, bleeding and, and broken, he walks up to the gates of his, of his dad's estate. And the father wouldn't go out to meet him. The father, if the father rejected him, he would stay in the house. And the son would just stand there at the gate and realize that he had been rejected and go wander off to some other community. If the father did have mercy on him to let him come in and be a servant or something like that, he would send a servant to go down and say, your father is allowing you onto the property. That's the end of the story that everyone's cheering for. That's not the end of the story that Jesus tells. But while he was still a long way off, so in other words, before he gets to the gauntlet of pottery shards, before he gets to the shame street, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. So just while old man Jim is like getting his pot, like, I cannot wait to break this in front of that kid. Show him who's about. All of a sudden, the dad's sprinting by. Oh, man. He's gone. He's not even waiting for the, for the, for the shame ceremony to happen. He's booked it past him. And what does he do? What does he do when he sees him? Check it out. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. 
Now, here's the thing. If you're north of 25 in this first century culture, as a dignified man, you don't run. You have people run for you. The reason you don't run is because in order to run in a male skirt, you have to hike that baby up in order to run, right? (laughs) And that was shameful for a guy to show his legs. It was shameful for ladies to show their legs and guys, apparently. And so this was something men of a certain age would not do. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, that's totally dishonorable. And he does it anyway. He hikes up that skirt and he sprints past all these guys ready to shame his son. And he throws his arms around him and he's crying and he says, and he starts to kiss his son. I love that picture. And then his son starts to rehearse the speech and say the speech that, he, that he's been rehearsing the whole way back to his dad. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right before he gets to the part of saying, I'm good for it, dad. I'll pay it off. I'll work as long as it takes. Before he gets to say what he can do for his dad, his dad cuts him off and he says this. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son, this son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. And now he is found so they began to celebrate. Now we think that's, that's a lot of time where we stop because we think that's the message of the story about that son. That's not the point. That's part of the story. It's awesome. But that's not the point of the story. The, story. the point of the story is the other son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. What's going through the older brother's mind right now is like, wait, wait, hold on, what? Dad did what? That kid got 50% of the inheritance, and it's gone. So from what is dad drawing upon to have this party now? Dad's drawing upon my stuff. How dare dad take my stuff for the, for the screw-up, the one who ran away from him, who dishonored him. Do you know what we should do to him? The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you never, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Jesus was communicating that if this seed has taken root inside of your heart, that does something about the way that you see the father and how the father sees other people. Because all of us in this room, if you're a Christian, we've been the younger brother. And you know what? A lot of us became the older brother like that. Where it was so easy for us to all of a sudden say, you know what? I'm, I'm a Christian. And I, these people over here, they are so far from God. There's no way God could actually, like seriously. Like I, I know that like we're supposed to like share our faith with people so that they can receive Jesus too. But you don't know what this guy's done. Like seriously. This guy's done way too much. He's way too worldly, way too messed up. You should hear how he talks. You should hear what she does. You know what she does on the weekend? There's no way that she would possibly receive Jesus. And we become 
the older brother. There's no way that, 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 the, that the Heavenly Father could break through here, that, that there's a hope for this person. Do you know what they've done? I'm comfortable keeping them outside of my church. People, we need to shed the older brother. And we need to do it now. We need to shed the older brother to realize that whether this person is in your family or this person is in your, you're married to this person, your boyfriend or girlfriend of this person, they're in your school, they're in your workplace, in your neighborhood. We got to stop being the people that are saying, I would not share my faith. I would never invite this person to church because fill in the blank with whatever you want. Because as soon as you fill in the blank with anything right there, you're the older brother that Jesus is talking about. And he's trying to correct you and me into saying the kingdom perspective actually looks at all those people as the person that the Heavenly Father wants to sprint down the road past the shame to and embrace. So this Easter, Easter is kind of a big deal for Christians. No, Easter is the big deal for Christians. It all hinges on the resurrection. And it's actually a weird thing in our society too because culturally, even people who aren't fans of Jesus or believe actually are willing to even show up to church just because it's an interesting thing to do on Easter. Well, Easter this year happens to fall on um, April Fool's Day weekend. And so we thought that how more appropriate than this to call this week, weekend in our calendar the foolishness of Easter. I want to encourage you to think about the younger brother in your world someone who's got doubts about their faith or even doubts about going all in for Jesus. And I want you to invite them, skeptics. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them as many reasons as I can think of why following Jesus is not a smart idea, why being a Christian is dumb, and then one reason why it's completely worth it. And so whoever is in your world, the younger brother, don't be the older brother. Have the view and the perspective of, of the Father and have that, that kingdom perspective that Jesus wanted his followers to get because it's kind of like a seed. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of like, like, like a son and it's kind of like a Samaritan. You guys know the story where Jesus talks about this guy that gets jumped on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That, that's that's an, a legitimate road even to this day. It's an ancient road, but it goes from like this lush um, area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's got like vegetation. It's, it's cold usually up there, but you start traveling down this 3,200 foot like decline over 18 miles and it gets to this. This is actually on the road to Jericho on one, on one of the wider areas that they've paved and it gets super arid, super quick. Most of the road to Jericho looks like this. This is actually on, this is some people hiking on the road to Jericho, and it's a very, very, uh, it's a place where it, it's easy to imagine how people could get jumped, especially because of this. People would take this road. Jesus and his disciples, when they were going to Jerusalem, took this road. Whenever you were going to Jerusalem for a religious festival, Sukkot, Passover, Pentecost, you would take, and you were coming from Galilee or any one of those areas, you'd go this way. And if you're like a, a, a guy who wants to rip somebody off, this was like easy pickings. Because, I mean, you, you could just look on your calendar. When are people going to be coming here? Boom, it's Passover time. We're going to be able to jump tons of people. And so, like, it was super easy to know when to get people. So Jesus sets this story in that context. But before it, he, he talks about this. On one occasion, on one occasion, this is on uh, the middle of page 339. On one occasion, an expert uh, in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he's not saying here, by the way, and this is confusing because I used to think that it meant something else. 
What it's not saying is, teacher, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? Eternal life, and that phrase, according to ESV Study Bible, talks about that being, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of God you're talking about? You're talking about a way of life and a kingdom perspective that's foreign to me. What must I do to inherit? Because I'm a super good guy. You should just ask my mom, okay? I'm super good. What do I have to do to inherit this? So Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Bing! This is like, this is right where everyone's mind goes. They know what it looks like. They've been there. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Everyone in the crowd's like, yep, we totally understand that. My cousin had that happen to him last week. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Pause. Why? Because that's the road you go on when you're leaving the temple after one of those religious festivals. This priest would just had an awesome opportunity to have a religious time in the most religious place for a Jewish person in the world. Jerusalem. And now he's going down after this religious experience down the same road that this guy got jumped on. And when he saw the man, he passed to the other side. How in the world do you do that on that path? What's the other side? Like seriously, you have to put yourself in precarious danger. Now there's some areas of the Wadi Kelp, the canyon there, that it widens out a little bit, but it's still super sketchy and precarious. You have to really be invested in avoiding someone to do so. So too, a Levite. Levites were kind of like interns underneath the priests. Uh, uh, the, so too, a Levite, when he came to a pl- the, the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But as, when a Samaritan, whoa, okay, now as soon as Jesus says that, everyone's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you talking about a Samaritan? Because all of us good Jewish kids, we know that our moms told us that if you want, whatever you do when you grow up, don't, don't hang out with Samaritans. Don't play with Samaritans. We got re- Growing up, Samaritans were people that they not only had a racial, ethnic, national diversity that, that caused them to be different, but they had bad blood from their history. So growing up as a Jewish kid, they had justifiable reasons to be bigoted against Samaritans. And guess what? Samaritans grew up with justifiable reasons to be bigoted against Jews. They don't play well together, and so they stay apart. And again, whether it was religious or ethnic, people had reasons to hate each other. And Jesus just tells the story where the two people who are supposed to be the heroes in the story, the religious guys, walk past the person they should be caring for. And Jesus pulls out into the story the hero, which just happens to be the one that everyone in the crowd is bigoted against. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. But he didn't didn't just have took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he took put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which was like uh, the equivalent of a daily wage wage of uh, labor, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, Jesus asks, the two religious guys that we all look up to as being the closest to God? Or the other guy? The one that we're bigoted against. Which of these three was a neighbor? You said that, that part of what we need to do for God is to love our neighbor. Which of the three was a neighbor to the man who needed help, who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. My Jewish audience, here's what you need to do. You want to know what you need to do? You need to be like the Samaritan in that story, the one you were bigoted against. My kingdom actually does this amazing thing. Once it's taken root in your heart, you see how God sees things differently, and it actually has practical, real, realistic way that you love people radically different from you, people that you disagree with for whatever reason. And Jesus is conditioning in his disciples the reality that for his followers, in the kingdom perspective, we actually have the ability to radically disagree with someone with their lifestyle, with their decisions, with whatever, and love them. And people around us should understand, I dis yeah, Errol totally disagrees with this guy's choices. And yet, if I thought of the people who loved this person most, Errol would come to the top of the list. Those two things simultaneously. And that's hard for us to, because as, as, as people in the 21st century, we think that if I'm supposed to love you, I agree with you. That's why I love you, because we agree. And Jesus says, no, you actually love people you agree with, and you especially love those you disagree with. So here's how this comes in, into fruition for us. We recognize that, especially during political seasons where you want to drop kick your television out the window because you're done with the commercials, okay? I don't even care who's going to be the governor anymore. I'm done. And you realize that there's things that divide us. That when we're talking about these things, people around us would pick up on the fact, yeah, Errol has an opinion about this. And yet, he loves that guy he disagrees with politically more than perhaps anyone I know. Or, or when things happen on Facebook and we speak into it, we actually are people as Christians who actually showcase a different model and perspective. Um, when I was in Israel was when the, the terrible um, school shooting took place and, and just broke our hearts. And, and then one of the things I was just, you know, because you can go on the internet in Israel too. Um, I was looking and seeing that, that one of the things in our community here, people were really freaking out about, about rumors and everything else about hap what was happening. And what happened was, as a community, a lot of people started to panic and freak out. And for good reason. These are our kids, for crying out loud. But people started to do so in such a way that was actually harmful to the police department and harmful to our schools. Now, as, as humans, that, that's understandable. Humans panic. But as Christians we actually can speak into a situation. And if you have to say something divisive online, may it be something that everyone around you would say, oh, I can see that this person has a very distinct opinion. And at the same time, this person loves the person they disagree with or they're critiquing perhaps more than anyone else I know. Now, is that easy? No. Is that the way of Jesus? Yes. That's the kingdom perspective that we're called into. Because it's kind of like a seed. It's kind of like a son. It's kind of like a Samaritan. And it's kind of like a sermon. Jesus actually uh, goes into one of the most amazing, powerful sermons on planet Earth at this place right here. This is uh, where we believe that uh, Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount, where he was training his disciples to have an alternate perspective on, on, on what happiness is and what, what, what the point of themselves is. And, and right here, just beyond that little, like the, the rim of flowers right there, it just it go, scoops down and it turns into this massive natural amphitheater where, where Jesus was able to talk to quite a few people that were his disciples. And there's just a couple of weeks ago, just the, right behind it, there's a church and Pastor Jason um, had a chance to teach us there. And it was so cool to open up my Bible to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and look at the very place that Jesus was talking. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, it's kind of like the birds of the air. Are they freaking out about life? No. 
It's because God takes care of them. And, and you could hear the birds. And like when, when he's like, why are you worrying about clothes? Because look, like there's, there's flowers. God's the one who's or, or, you know, given these flowers such beauty. And he'll, he'll do the same thing. He's going to take care of you. And you look around, you see the flowers that people were looking at. It's so cool. Because that's, that's where he did it. And in the midst of this, Jesus starts to say things that are absolutely counterintuitive and subversive to what we think of and I would say what we think of especially as kingdom-thinking people who are Americans, where the kingdom is built and based on our happiness, what makes us feel good. And Jesus just goes against the grain on that. He says this, Happy or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. Okay, that, that's like saying, wet are the people who are dry. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he say that? Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus continues on. I'm just going to ping pong around this. He says, happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely all things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. He later says, you are the light of the world. Why? Because of the fact this, in the midst of the darkness, everyone is pursuing their own kingdom based on their own passions, and they're going to end, come to the end of the road on their own reality time and time again. When they make everything about knocking it out of the park in their success, they get that. They finally achieve it, and they still are, still are wanting. When they make everything as far as knocking it out of the park in a relationship, and they finally get the relationship, and they're still left wanting. When, 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 when success and power and, and authority and grades and, and, and accolades when we actually finally pursue and accomplish those things and we're still wondering, why is it that I'm not happy? Jesus comes back and says, it's because you were looking for the wrong happiness. It's not in your kingdom. You can get all that and still be empty. Happiness is found when you look at yourself differently and you realize that this world truly is about surrender to me and service to others. And he goes through and he tells them not to worry. And he tells them to forgive even though they don't feel like it. And, and throughout this whole sermon, which, which has been used by Gandhi and Martin Luther King and other people as, as a point of what ethics look like, which surfaces human rights and, and, and ethics, which causes a person to think outside of themselves as the paradigm that we should be living off of. Jesus is telling us, that's my kingdom. It's about me and it's about others. It's not about you. You want an empty life? Keep running down the track of living for your own kingdom. You want a full life, a difficult, dangerous, precarious life, but one that's full of life. It's in my kingdom. See, what Jesus was summing up was this, that honestly, when, when our hearts connect with the Messiah's kingdom, kingdom thinking changes how we see God, and this alters how we treat others and totally flips the script on how we see ourselves. And he's calling his disciples to live this out. And these guys have to come to a point of saying, am I willing to do that because it's true? Because this is going to get me in trouble. This is going to alter my, my game plan for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. This could actually cause, cost me my life. If I actually am following this guy, how do I know he's not just a guy? Because all this may just be a political speech and may amount to nothing. It might just be another good guy's sermon. That's it. It's nothing. Unless. Unless there's someone who can actually back it all up. So what does Jesus do? 
He goes through the Sea of Galilee area, and he's constantly doing all of his ministry, and he's ping-ponging around this place, talking about his kingdom, and trying to condition his disciples to see reality differently. And all of his miracles and all of his everything, he's trying to communicate the fact that he's different. And when his disciples have to know whether or not they're willing to bet their life on it, Jesus doesn't just take them to the periphery of the lake. He actually takes them right to the middle, right to the middle where these kids who don't know how to swim are in a boat, and, and all of a sudden, this storm hits in. Just a couple weeks ago, we were on the Sea of Galilee, and it was super placid. It was like glass. It was, it was amazing. And it was so cool to sit there and look and, and see the area where, where Jesus walked on water. You know, right there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It was all right there. And, and, and Pastor Dave got up, and, he, and he, he taught on how there was this time when, when all those disciples were in the boat, and, and the sea had, had just started getting massively wavy because uh, the, the storms come in over the Golan Heights and they could swoop in and nobody knows it's going to happen and it turns a placid lake into a death trap. And all of a sudden, as the disciples are wondering if they're going to die, they look down at Jesus and he's chilling out. He's sleeping. And they wake him up. Aren't you afraid? And Jesus stands up and says, Be silent. Be still. And like that, Scripture says, the water, which was death-defying, goes to glass. And Jesus communicated to them in that moment, I can back all of this up. I'm not just a teacher, not just a prophet. I am, in fact, God. And they asked the question, who is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. After Dave finished teaching, this guy named Danny. Danny is a guy who's a Jewish guy who became a, a Christian. Um, he starts singing, how great is our God in Hebrew. And it was so cool. I was really taking it all in. But all of a sudden, I noticed that some people in our group started taking pictures of something that was happening over my shoulder. I was up towards the front of the boat, and something was happening behind me. And I, I just thought they were taking pictures of, of the Sea of Galilee behind me, but they weren't. They were taking a picture of Jim. Because a lot of the people on the trip know Jim, and they know Jim's story. And they know the fact that Jim had built his life around his own kingdom and watched his life burn down to the ground until he met Jesus. You want to know how you find a kingdom? You just look for the king. See, the king found Jim. And all of a sudden, Jim traded out his kingdom for Jesus's and a completely turned it all around. Because Jim realized that the thing that Pastor Dave was talking about was something that he was able to embrace, and that was the, the reality of the message. The, the message of this Messiah was that the kingdom is now. Jesus told the, the religious leaders, the kingdom is right now. It's not in heaven. It's not down the road. It starts now. And my question for you is this. Are you surrendering your life for that kingdom, or are you still trying to build up the chaos of your own? This Easter, let's go into this Easter as people who are surrendered and saying, Christ's kingdom first and foremost in my life, and that will be my reality. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to pray for our morning's offering, and we have one final announcement, then we'll be gone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you uh, the reality that we are all too accustomed to building a life that is all about our own kingdom and the disappointments therein. Lord, I pray that you convict us and cause us to repent, to surrender our lives to your kingdom, to allow our kingdom to be fused into yours, our hopes and dreams to be fused into yours, and even allow our dreams to be open to your critique, to change direction, to cause us to follow your lead. 
Lord, this morning as we come before you and we give to you um, in the offering, Lord, I pray that you use this to significantly impact the kingdom work done in this community and in this world, that it'll be done for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.